this is Base Layer, brought to you by Arca. I'm your host, David Nage. This is Base Layer, where institutional investors come to learn about crypto. This is David, and this is your new episode of Base Layer. And I'm really excited about this one because we have Brian Kelly, the founder and CEO of BKCM, a digital currency investment firm, with us today. Brian, how are you? I'm great. Uh, excited to be here, David. We've uh, been friends for a while now, and I'm glad to finally get on your show. Me too. And I'm going to take privilege and call you BK from now on on this Me because too. everyone Me else too. does. <laughs> um, and so, Brian, for those that don't know, which if you are in any kind of world of investments, I don't know how you don't know who Brian is because he's on CNBC and he's been in this space for a long time. And so we're going to talk about the world that we're living in today. Um, and I think we're just going to jump right in here right now. And so, Brian, I'd love to get your opinion. So we're going to talk about Bitcoin and about digital assets you know, shortly, but we have been experiencing what some have called an exogenous shock. Some have called it a black swan event. I personally don't agree with that because the data has been there that the virus was getting pretty nasty in early January. And you had things like the R-naught, which shows the diffusion of the virus, which was pretty high. But, you know, get us to where we are today. So we've seen a rebound in the market, on uh, the public equity markets. Um, we were obviously getting into, uh, on the Dow, we were below 20,000. The S&P was getting slaughtered. And then all of a sudden, uh, the Fed came in and started printing and printing and printing and printing. So give us a little bit of an update. Over the last few weeks, you know, some have speculated, I think Tom Lee just speculated that, you know, we kind of hit the bottom and that he's expecting a V-shaped. You know, I had Stephanie Link on the other day and we talked about the shape of the recovery. I'm curious, in your opinion, from what you're seeing, the data that you're seeing out there, you know, people have kind of postulated and speculated on the shape of the recovery. What do you think we're looking at right now? True. Starting off with the hard questions right away, David. Um, <laughs> so, so the true answer is I, I really don't know. Um, I'm hoping for a V-shape. I think a V-shape is probably my least probable uh, outcome. And I say that is because we just don't know what kind of economic damage has been done. We don't know how quickly the economy is going to get back on its feet. Um, you know, a lot of the signal in the markets in terms of stock markets and corporate bond markets has been destroyed because the Fed's just buying the market. So they're an indiscriminate buyer. Uh, so there's not a lot of price signal. There's not a lot of price discovery going on. So it makes it a lot more difficult to kind of understand what's really going on underneath. Um, you know, I think we're probably, if, if anything, you know, my base case is probably like an L-shaped type of recover. I think it's going to be fits and starts as we reopen and we start to see waves of the virus um, come back or, or go down, hopefully. But, you know, experience shows that um, once you start reopening, uh, the virus does pick its head back up again. Um, and so the reason why I don't know is I don't know how people are going to react to that. Are people going to say, well, this is something we have to live with and figure out ways to do that safely? Or are people going to go back and hunker down again? If we go back and hunker down again, I think the L-shaped recovery is probably the more probable path. Um, but, but like I said, it's really difficult. One of the most difficult periods in, at least in my career, and I've been you know, trading for over 30 years now, um, to try to figure out what the path of the economy is here. And so 
using your experience, you mentioned 30 years. So obviously you lived and breathed and worked through 08-09 and you know, subsequent time after the financial crisis. And so one thing that differentiates that is the health of the banks. And so I was talking to Stephanie the other day on the show, and we talked about that apparently about $1 trillion of deposits came into U.S. banks uh, over the first quarter. And so it's interesting. What do you think about that as a as a as a data point that banks are healthy this time, even though we have seen credit markets crumble, we've seen large corporations like Boeing and others out there having to you know extend their revolvers and, and go to the credit facilities constantly. What do you think about that? That the the banking system as of today is, is still fairly healthy, and it seems the U.S. consumers out there are actually depositing their cash in there. Yeah, I'm not that worried about the banks in general. Um, you know, after 2008, basically the Federal Reserve and everybody else parked all the fire trucks right out in front of the banks, uh, and they're all holding their hoses ready for a fire. Um, so if anything actually comes up, I'm sure the Federal Reserve, and we've seen it, uh, will come in. I think where what you see is where the risk has gone out is into some of the asset managers, whether it be what they call kind of the shadow banking system. Um, collateralized loan obligations, leveraged loans, all of those things, that's all that risk has been pushed off the bank's balance sheet. So I'm not worried about a banking crisis per se. I think they will likely have some credit losses, whether it be from the oil patch, whether it be from credit cards. Uh, but I don't think we're looking at a 2007, 2008 style banking crisis. That doesn't mean that there's not going to be credit issues uh, at, at the periphery. Like I said, with leveraged loans, is probably the one that kind of comes to mind immediately. Um, you know, you, that's in the asset management. That's kind of where this, the daisy chain of the, of the global economy comes into play because you have, you know, for example, a lot of um, smaller banks in Japan that have bought leveraged loans in the U.S. And if that starts to unravel, you can kind of see where the dominoes start to fall. Um, but that's not today. And, and I would say most of the major banks here in the U.S. are, are in pretty good shape. Um, but at the same time, that doesn't mean that they're going to lend, right? We've already seen Wells Fargo say they're not going to accept new HELOC, you know, home equity loans. Um, J.P. Morgan is probably going to be a little bit more conservative on the loans that they give out. Um, so, you know, you may see a credit contraction uh, in this particular case, uh, just because the bank's aren't going to lend as freely as they did used to. Right. And so let's jump to oil. So we had Billy Bailey on uh, a few weeks ago. Billy worked with the late great T. Boone Pickens, and we had an extensive conversation about oil at that moment in time. And this is how fast this market is moving. Oil had obviously, you know, we've seen a precipitous drop from the 60s to about $9 in WTI. And then we saw the derivatives markets. We saw May and June having significant issues. We saw May go negative uh, a few weeks ago to negative 37. Then June, uh, May went positive and then June went negative. And as of today, oil surges 20% post fifth straight day of gains for first time since July. What the heck is happening there? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, well, oil, it's, it's the supply response. Um, you know, if you want to get an idea of what's going on in the economy, I think the best place to look at is in commodities because the central banks aren't buying commodities, or at least as of yet. Um, so that kind of gives you a sense of what's going on. We've had a supply response. Um, we know that many of the rigs and many of the shale players are starting to 
shut off rigs. Um, and so when you have a supply response and investors are saying, okay, the economy is going to reopen, what does that mean for demand? Um, those, the combination of those two things, um, you know, have created this kind of wild trade uh, in, in oil. I also think, you know, it's probably you're getting a lot more volatility now uh, because there's probably a lot fewer kind of oil tourists trading um, at this point in time. Um, but it's kind of interesting, you know, we're both into, into crypto, into Bitcoin. Um, mm-hmm. You know, one way to think about both the oil, the rigs being shut off and the Bitcoin halvening that's coming up, it's very similar. Mm-hmm. Is that, you know, if you're looking in, in West Texas right now, they're shutting off all the daily supply. What's going to happen next? I guess it's what, maybe next Monday or the 12th, right? Uh, depending on block time, uh, what's going to happen? The, the amount of, of commodity coming out of the Bitcoin world, actual Bitcoins, is going to be cut in half. And so it's a very similar phenomenon. And if you have the same amount of demand with supply cut in half, thing, good things happen to price. Right. And that is a question that's on everyone's mind. You have the happening, as you alluded to, which as of today, being the 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 5th of May today, we will have 1,800 Bitcoin brought into the world from the validators and miners that are doing the work to validate those transactions and get rewarded for them. And as of the 12th, that will be cut down to 900. And so, correct, you will see a supply cut. And so many have been wondering if you see pent-up demand you will see, obviously, classical economic systems at pay that if you have you know, pent-up demand and you have a cut in supply, that it might be accretive to prices. However, you know there are people out there, and I'm sure you're aware of this too, that believe that Bitcoin has what we call meme pools. There are some very large ones in the world that kind of collaborate together and have quite a lot of power, if you will, in that they actually want to see the price of Bitcoin go down Uh, because that would actually help them out and they would be able to mine more Bitcoin and uh, have more ownership of that. And so they would like to kick out some of the less capitalized miners of the world and through a price drop that would actually force some people out. And so I'm curious, you know, on both sides of those spectrums and I'm just kind of surmising some of the, the thoughts out there, it sounds like you're in the belief that we might see, you know, pent up demand and more of that classical economic systems at bay. Uh, yeah, I, I, I think so. But I, I'm, gonna, I'm going to kind of um, hedge my bets a bit here. So if you look back at the last two happenings, and we only have a sample size of two, so that's not very robust statistically. But if you look at the past two happenings, for the first 30 to 60 days, you actually saw a decline. Uh, in the price of Bitcoin. And a lot of that was likely because of what you're alluding to is that kind of weak miners, miners with a very high cost basis might be squeezed out because while the price, while the supply is cut in half, that also means that their revenues are cut in half. Um, so you may have some miners that need to liquidate that may be weighing on the price. Um, I do think the difference between this happening and the other two, though, is we haven't had the macroeconomic backdrop that we have today. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that could be uh, a, a kind of a, the demand factor that we've been looking for. Um, you know, as institutions come in uh, looking for ways to express a view on money printing, one way is to do it gold. Mm-hmm. 
um, you know, you might mitigate some of this kind of weakness from the, from the uh, high cost miners. Um, so, I, you know, I, I'm in the camp that, that I think we're going to be okay. Um, but, you know, as a, as a trader at heart and a volatility junkie, I'm okay if it drops um, down, you know, it'll be created an opportunity for a lot of people. And so I think it's interesting you bring that up, the macro backdrop and the obviously the meme out there, the printer goes burr. And that has been something that has obviously gone through our circuits all over the world, you know, on crypto Twitter and the likes of those that are in this space. Let's just, you know, the Fed, let's get, you know, some numbers out there. The Fed yesterday announced borrowing of three trillion dollars. And you and I both know that with borrowing, what happens when you borrow? you have to also pay interest. And so uh, it is my opinion, and I think it's the opinion of others, especially those that are already acquainted with Bitcoin, that this is going to have what I would define as a non-zero probability that it will be fairly destructive or in some semblance destructive to USD in the future. Now, it's interesting. I've talked to many family offices about this with the idea that obviously of the last let's call it month and a half or so, two months, with the virus, the U.S. government has authorized the over $2 trillion package, several $800 or $500 million, uh, billion dollar packages. And so all of this is starting to obviously be you know tallied up. Do you have an opinion, and obviously I'm not holding into this, but do you have an opinion that all of this might cause some inflation or, or destruction of value of USD in the future? Um, it could. It could. So you have a couple different things going on. What the Fed and the Treasury and everybody has done so far is basically fill the hole. Um, so when we saw something very similar in 2008, where um, they basically came back and just filled whatever anybody had lost um, and filled that hole. So you didn't necessarily have a huge expansion. Um, well, you did have a huge expansion of money supply. Uh, but it didn't necessarily get itself into the economy. Um, and we're starting to see something somewhat similar. And by not into the economy, if you look at the excess reserves on banks' balance sheets, they just skyrocketed. So that it wasn't really filtered out into the economy. Um, there's a lot of reasons for that. Some of it was actually regulatory. Um, you know, other reasons were that there just weren't good opportunities to spend that money. Um, but again, we're looking at a little bit of a, or actually quite a bit different scenario here, um, where not only do you have an awful lot of money coming into the system, but now you have potential supply constraints with the supply chain. Um, and if you look at what's happening just with the meatpacking uh, plants mm -hmm. here in the U.S., um, you're starting to see meat shortages because half the workers are sick. Um, and so if you have a whole bunch of money chasing constrained supply, then yeah, you're going to get a, you know, a fairly robust inflationary uh, response. Mm -hmm. Now, the only other thing is, is, is weighing on the other side of that is what we've had here with both, you know, I've called it the twin crises, which is the health crisis, as you called it a, you know, it, it wasn't really a black swan. I agree with you on that. It was a white swan that turned black because of, um, well, because people, I don't know if they didn't believe it or ignored it or were slow to act, whatever the reason why, that health, health crisis morphed into an economic crisis. But the second crisis was the oil uh, price war. Mm -hmm. And so both of those together are a massive deflationary shock. Um, so for the time being, kind of the two are counteracting each other. And again, this goes back to 
why it's really difficult to see which way the, the economy is going to go, because we could just as easily have runaway inflation if everybody, if the supply chain is constrained tremendously and everybody has a lot of money in their bank account uh, and goes out and spends it, but it's being counteracted by layoffs, unfortunately, by unemployment, um, by a lot of different things that are restraining some of that consumer uh, behavior. That being said, your purchasing power of your U.S. dollar is going to go lower. That's just what's going to happen. You're not going to be able to buy as much as they expand the money supply. That's you know, your, kind of your basic economics. Your purchasing power is going to go down. So what do you look for? You look for uh, assets with a hard supply cap, mm -hmm. uh, gold being one. Now we have Bitcoin and other cryptocurrencies. Um, you, know, you can consider maybe some other commodities, but kind of the more traditional financial market instrument currencies are gold and Bitcoin. Mm -hmm. Um, so I, I think, I think that's where the demand's going to come from. It's interesting. A new RIA, uh, out there was on Twitter a few days ago and mentioned that he was talking to a potential client about Bitcoin. And then he went to two, uh, of his advisors, I guess, with more of the traditional finance backgrounds, the wirehouses, if you will, the large brokerages out there. And after consulting with them, came back and said, nope, not going to do it unless you can give me one sentence why I should go ahead and purchase Bitcoin. And so that set off a whole firestorm of ideas. And I kind of equated it to, you know, I know Chamath has been on the airs a lot with you guys. And, you know, back around 2013, he penned the idea of it being schmuck insurance, this being Bitcoin, um, with the idea that the global system, the financial system has shown itself to be weak and that global calamity, things can happen, that you want to have assets that are outside of the financial system. And so my response to this person on Twitter was that Bitcoin is something akin to you don't fill the sandbags when the flood is already hit. You fill those sandbags before the flood is coming. When you can see it coming or when you feel that it's coming or when you have evidence that there might be a flood coming, you fill those sandbags to protect your house before it happens, not when it's already happened. And that's kind of the way I think of Bitcoin as a diversifier in people's portfolios. I'm curious, when you're talking to other family offices and institutional investors that I know you do, is that kind of a similar approach or what do you take? Yeah, it's, um, you know, I'll, lay, I'll give you another analogy. People have called it fire insurance. Mm -hmm. um, it's, you know, it's something that you hope you never have to use, uh, but you got to have it um, and it diversifies your portfolio. Um, you know, what I would say right now, though, is if you think about it, um, you have an opportunity to buy fire insurance while the fire is going on. Right. We're, we're right in the middle of this right now. The flames are blazing. The fire trucks are there. They're squirting a bunch of liquidity. And Bitcoin price, while it's, con you know, we had that Black Thursday, it really hasn't responded all that much. It started to over the last week, but gold was really outpacing it. So you have an opportunity to get into an asset that was created for exactly this scenario. And it had that, that and, and investors haven't gotten into it yet. Um, so I think that's number one interesting. You know, the other thing is, you know, why, why do you, why buy Bitcoin in one sentence uh, in this environment versus gold? I think it's just better risk reward. If I look at the macro environment, I want to make a bet on money printing or against money printing, really. How do I do that? I do it with gold or I do it with Bitcoin. If gold goes higher, you know, maybe it could double and go to 3000. Nobody's going to be upset with a double in their portfolio at all. Uh, but if Bitcoin goes higher, you know, Bitcoin has the ability because it's so volatile to go to five or 10 X. 
Um, so where else in the world can I spend, what is it, at 8900 today? Mm-hmm. Can I spend $8,900 and have the potential to turn it into $50,000 or $100,000? Um, the risk reward to me is just so much better in in Bitcoin than it is in any other asset class. Now. That's a great take on that. And uh, I don't know if a lot of people are actually you know, kind of standing by that. That is actually a very interesting way to think about it. Obviously, you know, when you have risk reward and for the family offices out there, there are a few that I'm thinking of. You know, you think about the deviation of returns and you think about, okay, how many kind of deviation points of return am I looking at? And some are more comfortable. You know, there are family offices out there that are willing to look for 20%, 25% IRR on a yearly basis on a specific asset. And there are ones that only want maybe 10 or 12% and they're more absolute return. And But you are, you know, pointing out something really interesting about Bitcoin's history is that uh, over the 10 years that it has been around, it has proven itself uh, to obviously do quite well. It is a portfolio diversifier. And today, as you know very well, the institutional platforms and the support for Bitcoin today is far and above than it was two years ago, you know, than, you know, what we saw in 2017 during the retail run-up. And so I think that is also something that differentiates us now versus, say, 2017. Would you agree? I, ab- absolutely. The infrastructure is much, much better. Listen, in 2017, we didn't even have any uh, institutional quality custodians. Uh, BitGo was out there. Um, but you didn't have Fidelity. Uh, Coinbase has now got a trust charter. You know, you didn't have anything like that in 2017. So the on-ramps are so much better uh, than they were two years ago that I think um, you know, it, it's just a lot easier for institutions uh, to get into this, institutions and family offices to get into this at this point in time. Agreed. So as we wrap up, one of the things I'd love to get your opinion on, and you could have something out there or not, but we're into May, and obviously we've been dealing with a global pandemic. We've been in quarantine. We've been in lockdown. We talked prior to the show how it's uh, affecting us here and what's happening. We're seeing a migration out of major metros into more suburban areas where there's less density. I'm curious, you know, as an investor, you know, thinking about the rest of the year, obviously taking into account what we're dealing with today, and obviously Buffett uh, had his opinions over the weekend, especially it relates to airliners that he believes that they're in for very tough times over the next few years. I'm curious, you know, as everyone's kind of thinking about narratives for the rest of the year and going to 2021, what are you thinking about? Uh, yeah, so I, I, I think um, I think the move away from density is probably something um, that is is going to continue to go on. Um, I think there's a real question about you know what kind of restaurants uh, reopen in both New York City and other major cities, and can they actually operate uh, at 25 to 50 percent capacity? Um, you know, when it comes to airlines, I'll just kind of give you anecdotally how I, I, me, I was um, scheduled to do a trip to Asia in March, um, this past March. Obviously, that was canceled. Uh, and I don't think it's likely that I would go back to Asia for another year or so. International travel uh, is going to be down significantly. Um, it's not that I don't want to go back to Asia. It's just that I'm not sure that the conferences are going to be going on as well as, yeah, you know, I can do it via Skype or Zoom now. Um, those seem to be working fairly well. So there's less of a need uh, for me to hop on a plane and fly 18 hours uh, during the middle of a pandemic. So I'm thinking about that. Um, you know, I'm certainly thinking about 
what the government response is going to be in the fall if we have a second wave, uh, what people's response are going to be in the fall if we have a second wave. Um, and then, you know, I also think a lot about what's going on in the emerging markets. Um, what we're doing here, we talked a little bit about the dollar, but what we're doing here, even though we're printing a ton of dollars, you would think that the dollar would be going lower. It's actually going higher. And that's putting a lot of stress on the emerging markets. Uh, and so, you know, I can get concerned about a potential currency crisis in emerging markets. Um, so I got a, I got a lot of things that I'm worried about. Um, you know, stack it to the things you worry about in 2020. It, it seems that 2020 is trying to, uh, trying to take us out. Um, any one of these things that are, that are tail risks today could come up and flare up and create a problem. And I, and I think that's probably, you know, I know that I, I think that's the sentiment of a lot of investors. And I think probably that's what's weighing on, you know, Warren Buffett, he was saying the, the, the list of things that can happen or the, 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 uh, probabilities of different things that are going to happen are so dispersed now that it's difficult to get a handle on it. So those are all the things I worry about. Um, that being said, I would 100% agree with Warren Buffett. You do not want to bet against America. Uh, I have tremendous faith in this country in ingenuity uh, and creativity. And I would also say that when it, as relates to this virus, the entire world is now working on a solution to this. So mm-hmm. Um, you know, this, this is, um, this is a worldwide problem and we've got the best minds in the world working on it. So I am hopeful for a vaccine or an antiviral or a resolution to this sooner than later. I agree. And, uh, I was early on in February and, uh, March when we started hearing about fiscal and monetary stimulus, I kept on saying, well, that's not what we need. We need a therapy and we need a vaccine. And I know, you know your colleague, Jim Kramer has been saying the same thing that it wasn't about money. It was about a therapy. It was making sure that if you got it, that you had a drug that could get you out of the hospital and get you back home. And, you know, that's the end of the day is that, you know, we knew that vaccines were going to take about 12 months to 16 months in this new world that we're dealing with, with genetics and genomics. And, uh, you know, I think we are hopeful that I agree with you that some of the data that's coming out on Gilead's drug and some of the vaccines that are being worked on from, you know, Moderna and Oxford, are showing promise. And so there are a lot of variables out there and there's a lot of probabilities at bay. And so I agree with you. It's something that, you know, it's funny, you and I both know that you, the old verbiage of kind of, you know, buying, you know, sell in May and go away kind of, you know, it's, it's, you're not going to be going away in May. You're not going to be going away in June. You're not going to be going away in July and August, even if you're trying to, you know, get a little mind share and try to, you know, defocus. It's not going to happen right now, you know, especially in 2020. So Brian, thank you for coming on the show. Thank you for your insights into the market, especially into Bitcoin, everything that's happening out there. And hopefully we can have you back on towards the end of the year where maybe, just maybe, we can actually do this in person. But that's, I know. That would be fantastic. (laughs) Thank you so much, David. I really appreciate it. Love the podcast. And uh, thanks for having me on. Take care. For more notes from this past episode about our guest, please go to www.ar.ca slash baselayer. Nothing stated on this podcast should be taken as investment advice, which would require a thorough assessment of each investor's personal financial profile and risk tolerance. 
statements regarding past performance are not necessarily indicative of future returns. If you like what you're listening to on Baselayer, let us know. Subscribe, give us a like, or hit us up on Twitter, Arca at Arca, or myself, David Nage at DavidJN79. Let us know, and we'd love to obviously hear from you. For additional resources to help sophisticated listeners like yourself learn about the digital asset space in the financial terms you understand, please visit www.ar.ca for articles, marketing commentary, videos, and more.